This evening we are going to embark upon a study that's um, going to take some work to get into. We have been working through 1 Samuel in the past. Uh, we worked through the first um, eight chapters. Really, we're going to start in chapter 8 again. We're going to go back there to really get a running start into uh, this study of the balance of 1 Samuel. We're going to be bringing in a lot of texts from both uh, earlier texts, Deuteronomy, as well as other passages, uh, including some in the New Testament. Tonight we're going to really focus mostly on Daniel, believe it or not, uh, as a testimony to what we are going to be looking into. We've looked at the government and the home in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. We then take some time to talk about the government within God's people, that when we are under a a rulership of Christ, when we claim that Christ is our head, our uh, Lord, and uh, is the ruler of the church, then uh, the characteristics that we see in Israel uh, during the days of uh, the judges of Christ, or God's direct rule through the Levites, his place in the tabernacle, uh, we should be sharing in some of those principles. We looked at them, and we saw where Israel failed was not God's side of that government, but man's side of that government. Particularly when we got into dealing with the children of godly men and their inability to uh, continue with the uh, service that God had called them into. And with regard to that, we don't see that extensively um, Limited, And so we saw it both with Eli as a priest. We also saw it with Samuel as a judge. And so it wasn't limited to one area where we have this failure of leadership. But we also see that the difference between when God was allowed to address that issue and when man took that issue into his own hands, which we're going to have in chapter 8. So we've looked at those two facets of government in terms of our home, and among God's people, we applied that to the church. We want to now look at government, um, as David says, the capital G, what we think of as government in the political realm and the nations. And what is our relationship with them? And uh, what is a government that pleases God? And what is God's pleasure with respect to our engagement with Him? With the government in terms of God. What does God desire of us? Uh, and we're going to look at government, and we're going to have to define it a little bit. And, and uh, really, we're, I want to respond to some of what we see in the milieu of Christianity today, of what they consider um, a political role of the church. Uh, we really want to investigate that a little more thoroughly and evaluate where is the church today in regards to our government. Um, but we want this to be more than just about the American form of government. Uh, if we're going to derive principles from God's Word, it needs to be applicable across the board. Why is that necessary? Well, if these are principles that are divine principles, they apply to all men in all time um, and with regard to all governments. And obviously, uh, a Chinese person who is living in China underneath that government needs to go to the same Bible we have, um, not in English, in Chinese, and derive these same principles and be able to apply them consistently within his government. That a Christian in Iran can go to his Bible, derive principles, enable him to have a right relationship with his government. And thus, whether it be a monarchy or, uh, or any various forms of oligarchy or or uh, communistic uh, governments, um, Republican form of governments as we have, uh, two democracies which are extraordinarily rare uh, and for good reason, um, although we are moving in the direction of a true democracy here and abandoning large measure of the Republic form, the Roman form of government, moving more towards the Athenian view. Um, we want to really investigate these. And so the principles that we have should really apply across the board um, in terms of our relationship with nations. That this isn't just for um, uh, monarchies where we have a king or queen. Um, certainly that is the predominant form of government throughout the scriptures. 
Of course, we get into the New Testament. We're dealing with a, a Roman form of government that we're really modeled after, where you have a Senate, you have a Caesar, um, and certainly the Caesars took on more of a kingly role than, than we have historically had in our country. Um, and the Senate was not derived from the uh, election process like we would have, but by an appointment. Uh, and so we're going to discuss some of those facets. But we have um, some principles that need to be applied. And one of those principles we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks is what does God grant to government? And you're not going to like what you hear. Because the things that God grants to government um, are things that we complain about. The right to our children. The right to our stuff. The right to tax us. Um, God grants that to governments that are not theocracies. In a theocratic form of government, uh, we didn't see that because all of them belong to the king of kings, the Lord. But when we get into a foreign kind of government, I say foreign, that is, is not of God's design, of men's design, and yet we have God allowing it to be implemented and willing to work within the context of those governments, not just among Israel, but as we're going to see tonight, and this is why we have to start in Daniel, is because his really his statement is, is that he is the one who is involved and active in all these forms of government that none of them act independently of his role. And this is something our founding fathers, I believe, missed entirely in their formation of this government. And if you read their writings, they are trying to support this form of government biblically, and they're trying to uh, tear down other forms of government, specifically monarchies, and the kind of... Uh, Republican representation that was there in the House of Lords and in the House of Commons uh, later uh, that was added. And so we find that uh, they were quoting some of the very scriptures that we're going to be handling here in 1 Samuel. They used those scriptures to uh, tear down a form of government and to lift up, build up another form of government. But what we find rather in God's Word, a more generalized principle that draws us uh, to a very different attitude and one that was, still, was prevalent 200 years ago in our country. There were those that held to this position. And they quoted Scripture accurately. And so there was, within the context of the revolution in the 1750s, 60s, 70s, you have this interchange of theology with regard to government. And it was a healthy one. Um, and some of it we're going to agree with. Some of it we're going to see the, the error. Uh, the difficulty is that you have a lot of influence um, historically in our narratives today, in our history books. Today, a lot of the focus is put on one side of the argument. And it is not the biblical side. It is the Jeffersonian side. And once we begin to understand that that's mostly what we're being uh, fed, um, we struggle with how we are interpreting what was going on back then. But when we go back to the original writings, particularly of some of the groups that uh, would be considered traitors today, for what they were saying, uh, we would, um, I think, get a more accurate picture. And so... This, this dialogue is not new. Uh, what we are teaching is not a new teaching. I'm not taking God's Word and trying to uh, apply it to our day in some unique fashion. But rather, these are principles that have been discussed, that have been even debated hotly in some occasions um, with regard to how governments are formed and how the Christian community responds to government when government goes bad. And, of course, that's going to be towards the end of our study, is more of what happens when it fails. What rights do we have before God, not in our nation's constitution, but before God, what is the role that the church should have in respect to 
government leadership. And we're going to see that. And that's going to draw us into later parts of 1 Samuel. It's going to take us into the Gospels. It's going to take us uh, into the Epistles. Uh, more so in the Gospels. But we're going to look carefully at that. But first I want to take us and consider this testimony. Um, number one, that the government of the nations is different than the government of God's people. That God understood that, Samuel understood that, Israel understood that, and their request to Samuel and hence to God was, we want a king like the nations. And that's the phrase used in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, Give us a king to judge us. We want a king like the nations. And over and over again, we're going to see that really stretching into Saul's um, coronation way in chapter 12, you're going to find the same kind of description, is that we want to be like the nations. And so when we begin talking about this, we need to begin talking about the nations and God's role there. And before we do that, let's pray, because I'm going to need a lot of help. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for this time we can look into your word, and we pray that as we consider its truth, that we might see your hand and its power and its stretch, that we might recognize that you have not been off in the sides, that you are not unaware and, and just uh, accepting whatever comes, but that you are actively involved in this process called government among nations. And we pray that we might, in response to that, uh, in recognizing your hand, know that rightly Relating to our government is right relating to you. We pray you might give us that wisdom tonight in your word, by your spirit, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. So we want to be like the nations, Israel tells Samuel. We want a king who will do three things for us. They want they want three things for the king to do. Uh, they want the king to fight their battles. That's the last thing they list. They want the king to judge them, to be judge over them. In other words to replace the role of the judges like Samuel. Uh, And so we want the king to do that for us. Um, And we want him to rule. We want to be like all the nations. Uh, We want to conform. We don't want to be so unique. Uh, We don't want to be difficult. We want to be like everyone else. And so we want the king to make us on par with the other nations We want him to judge us. We want him to transplant the role of the judges uh, that God raised up, like Samuel. And we want him also to lead us off into battle, which is something that the judges also did. And so we have to ask ourselves, now that we're talking about being like the nations, before we talk about God's role there, we want to find out, is God involved in the other governments? In other words, is God engaged in the nations today? Does he move in governments today. Um, Whether they're communists or whether they're monarchies or republics or any kind of mixture that's out there, um, does God move? And we want to go to the book of Daniel to really consider that. And I go to the book of Daniel because it is a book that is outside of the purview of Israel as a nation. It's really investigating God's working among the nations outside of Israel. Israel's course is carried off into captivity. Um, And so over the course of this, we're going to find Daniel's testimony to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, to Belteshazzar in Babylon. We're going to have his testimony to Darius the Mede, to Cyrus the Persian. And we're also going to have him giving communication about the coming Greek Empire, the coming Roman Empire, and its uh, various deteriorated forms over history. And so we find here a testimony. Here is a man of God dealing with foreign nations. And how is he going to deal with them? And as you read through the book of Daniel, we have this wonderful presentation of God's role in government. That he does have an active place there that he preserves not only for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations. And so we find that Daniel is carried off captive and he is immediately confronted with a choice. You either conform 
or take a stand. And Daniel doesn't do it in a defiant way, but he comes to the people in charge, follows the chain of command, and says, listen, I have a heart commitment against defiling myself with these things, and, and I really want to uh, remain pure. And can, is there any way to do this? In verse 9 of chapter 1 of Daniel, we find now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And so the chief, the guy who's in charge, um, is approached. He says, listen, um, I fear my lord the king. All right, good attitude to have. This guy knows his job and he knows what the king expects and he's afraid that if he doesn't do his job, he's going to lose his head which is probably pretty true, considering what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to his wise men in just a little bit later in Daniel, right? Wise men, tell me what I dreamed last night. I don't want the interpretation. I want you to tell me the dream. And if you don't do that, I'm going to have you chopped up in little pieces. That was the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. Tell me my dream. Before you tell me it, I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me the dream. If you can't do that, then you're liars and cheats. And I'm going to have you chopped into little pieces. So this guy had good reason to be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and so Daniel just sets out a thing and says, well, and he has a great statement in verse 12. He says, please test us. He has a request. Can you just, let's just do a test then. I appreciate your position. Um, you appreciate my position. Uh, I have a purpose in my heart not to divide myself. You have a job to get done, and you have a fearfulness that if that job isn't done right, that you're going to be... So let's just do a test. You have us for three years, and, and that was how long the Academy for Babylon lasted. You have us for three years. Let's take ten days of that three years. <laughs> so if it doesn't work out, What's Daniel saying? Daniel's saying, for ten days, let's have a test. If we pass the test, then we can continue this course without defiling myself and my heart, what I've stood for. And if, if I fail the test, then I'm going to submit to your menu for the next two years and 50 weeks. That's what's on line here. I'm going to submit from here on out, but please, can we just, let's just have a test. Let's just try this. Can we just try it for 10 days, which is an incredibly short period of time. But the man says, sure, you know, I've got three years before I'm going to be really measured by what's going on with you, before you're going to have to appear before the king. So we have three years, so... You're going to take 10 days. Uh, I can, you know, it won't kill my, I won't be risking much. And so we'll just do this test for 10 days. And 10 days they do the test. And of course, you all know the result. And that was at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his guys appeared better, fatter. I love that. Better is fatter. It says so right here in the Bible. It says in verse what? Verse is it? 15. Then the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So they were eating rich foods and wine. Daniel was eating vegetables and water and they ended up fatter and healthier looking than the others. Great stuff. And so the steward says, okay, you don't have to drink these things. And God blesses these guys, Daniel and his friends, in verse 17, and he gives them knowledge, uh, wisdom, and skill. Uh, they learn the language faster than anyone else. They learn the literature faster. They're able to understand dreams and visions. Daniel is. Um, he's brought before the king. The king loves these guys. They, they are head and shoulders above everyone else in their performance of what was expected of them at the end of three years. And so they served before the king directly. And they were ten times better than what was than the men who were raised in Babylon to do that job. They were ten times better as foreigners than the nationals. 
And so, of course, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And so our first engagement, we find Daniel coming to his authority, recognizing that he is there and that, he is, that this is authority God has placed him under as part of the... He's been preserved. He wasn't destroyed with all the rest in, there in Jerusalem. He was preserved. He was kept alive. He was put under these authorities. And he functioned within those authorities, coming to them with this proposal. The proposal pleased the man after the results were in. And Daniel can enjoy this three years of training. But he was being trained to serve this very king. So we come to chapter 2, and of course there's Nebuchadnezzar's statement. I'm looking for uh, someone to tell me my dream. No one can do it. Uh, Daniel goes in. <clears throat> Since his life was on the line too, he was one of the wise men. And somehow he hadn't been consulted, and, but he was on the death to the wise men list. So he says, what's the deal? He's told what happened. He says... Let the king know that we'll be showing up there shortly. Um, give me a little time. He has a little prayer meeting with uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends. And they ask the God of heaven about the secret. God's going to show it to him. And we now have the famous verses of chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And this is Daniel's praise psalm. And here's what he said. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. <clears throat> he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. So God had given... Nebuchadnezzar, a vision, and that alone should bother us, right? This is not a godly man. And by the way, this isn't the first time. I think this happened in Genesis with Pharaoh too, right? Doesn't it bug you that God reveals the future in a vision to this king? Just like he revealed the future to Pharaoh? That there's going to be seven years of feasting and then seven years of famine? God didn't reveal that to an Israelite. He didn't reveal that to Jacob. He didn't reveal that to Judah or to Simeon or even to Joseph. He came in a dream to a king. And here is a godless king who has gone in and done horrible damage to Israel destroyed Jerusalem, slaughtered people who claim to be God's people, who is an instrument of judgment, and God comes and gives him a dream. And the dream has validity. <clears throat> it is a message. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar this, that God has made known something to you, king. We find that later on as Daniel begins to talk to Nebuchadnezzar later in this chapter. He says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, um, God's the one that reveals secrets and God has revealed something to you. We would expect him to say, well, God has told me everything and let me lay it out to you. No. He says, listen, king. My God is a revealer of secrets, and the future is a secret. But he has revealed that future to you. A godless king who had just wreaked havoc on the Holy Lands, who had destroyed the temple. He may not have done it yet by this point, but the evidence is that he probably already had. Who had destroyed it. He's the one that went in there and penetrated that and, and brought it to ruin that one stone did not lay on the other and, and decimated Jerusalem. We find Daniel coming to him and says, God's shown you some things. 
God has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He's shown you your future. And this isn't the only dream that Nebuchadnezzar is going to get. He's going to get another one more specific in this time frame. The first vision involves the entire history of humanity to the coming of Christ. Including the coming of Christ. The second coming. The entire history of governments is laid out to not Moses, not David, not Solomon. It's laid out to Nebuchadnezzar, a godless king, we would think. And Daniel comes in, and in his statement, he makes a very powerful statement that God is the one who removes kings and raises up kings. This is not talking about Israelite kings. This is talking about Babylonian kings and Assyrian kings and pharaohs down there in Egypt and Medes and Persian kings that are coming and Greek kings that are coming and Roman kings, Caesars that are coming. This is God is the one who removes them and sets them up. He is the one. His name is to be blessed forever and ever. And God is working in a very powerful way in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And he's going to respond. It's going to take God some incredible measures to get his attention. And sometimes I really wish that God would still do this to men to humble themselves. That they would humble, be humbled like this. That if you hear the gospel and reject it, you have to go out there and eat like a cow for seven years. So you recognize there's a God in heaven who's greater than me. And I need to listen to him. You know, then we just have a pastor set out. Yeah, that's our future church out there. We got that pastor going. Or we got those people being humbled by God. The reason there was such an extensive humiliation was because of the extent of what God had revealed to him. With revelation comes responsibility. So here's the king. And I'm not going to get into the image and the vision and the description, but I want you to see how God works in that nation. That God raised this up. And all the prophets that we study in the minor prophets that were pre-invasion uh, of Babylon all talked about the fact that God's got this guy. He's raised up. That God has not just permitted this. This is not a passive voice here. That God raises them up and sets them down. He's the one that builds and destroys he, he's the one that takes kings and moves them at his will. Um, and he has brought Nebuchadnezzar to this point, to this authority, and is at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could have just ignored it, could he not? Right? Couldn't he have just said, that was a really bad dream. I wonder what I ate last night. I've got to avoid that meal. But he took it seriously. He challenged his wise men that he wanted to know the truth. And this guy, whatever you want to say about it, at this point, he wanted to know the truth. And truth seekers are the best people to witness to. I just want to know the truth. Not wise guys that think they have an answer for every argument that for Christ or for the gospel, but truly people who want to know. And they're getting to be rarer in this day. I just want to know the truth. He was so committed to knowing the truth, he was willing to slaughter his entire body of wise men and all the knowledge that was stored in that group, even these fine Hebrew young men that he had just met. This king wanted to know the truth. God had put him there. God had already used him to judge his people. Now he's confronted with the question, are you willing to recognize that I am the one who has been using you? And this is what we usually struggle with. Is recognition. Most of us will give lip service that God raises up kings, because it says so right here, and removes them. That's his job. 
And God is going to preserve that with Israel particularly, but I will contend that he, that he preserves that as his role for all nations, not just Israel. So when Israel wants to become like the nations, one of the stipulations that God is going to tell them, which I believe applies to all the nations, is, all right, you can have your form of government, but I reserve the right to decide who is king. My choice, not yours. You've chosen to have a king like the nations. Well, like in all the nations, I'm going to reserve the right that I choose the king, not you. That's huge. And here, Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with the fact that, you know, God is the one who's been doing all this for you. And all the way through here, um, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream, and again, the fiery furnace, you have this confrontation again, this conflict where Nebuchadnezzar wants to say he's to be worshipped and then later on realizes, what am I doing? The only one true and living God is the one that's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know where Daniel was. He was on assignment somewhere. He was out of town um, in that event. And his statement was, again, for the second time, that no other God should be served but these guys' God. He's the only one and true and only God. Wow, but he's still not saved. He still hasn't humbled himself. He's been embarrassed now twice by these guys from Jerusalem. Confronted twice, and now on a third time, he gets another dream, and again he gets an interpretation from Daniel um, called Belteshazzar. And after hearing that interpretation, um, he doesn't obey it, he doesn't listen, and, and even though Daniel's like, oh, please, king, um, let this be a warning and not a foretelling. Let this dream be a warning to you instead of a foretelling of the future to you. By you humbling yourself before God right now, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do it. And, of course, then he becomes, eats grass and sleeps out in the outdoors and, and um, is like an animal for those years. And then comes to his senses and he looks up to heaven and his reason returned to him that the glory of my kingdom, the honor and splendor of my kingdom, all that around me, all the counselors, all the nobles, are all by the king of heaven's hand. And he recognizes what has always been the case. So whether a king recognizes it or not isn't relevant. Nebuchadnezzar, it took him a while, but he finally recognized it. Darius is going to recognize it. I believe that's why they are of precious metal in their empires, um, because they surrendered themselves to the God of Daniel, the God, the King of Kings. And so they recognize it, but not all did. The Assyrians didn't, and they were handled for it. And throughout the history of nations, from the flood forward, God says, I am the one who establishes kings and kingdoms. Let's go forward and look at uh, the relationship with Belshazzar in chapter 5 of Daniel. And you know they're, they've defiled the, the gold and silver and bronze um, vessels, the gold vessels from the temple that was brought in. They were preserved and kept as holy instruments until this time. Um, Daniel is, there's a handwriting on the wall. Daniel's brought in to interpret that. And then Daniel answered, though, before he interprets any of it, he has a message for Belshazzar. And here's his message in verse 18 of chapter 5 of Daniel. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom? God did. Because of the majesty that God, that's capital He, gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, all people's nations' language trembled and feared before Nebuchadnezzar. 
whom he wished, he executed him every wished, he kept alive, and now we start entering into what is a king allowed to do? What are kingly, what are royal rights? And I think we're starting to see in what royal rights means. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. And they took his glory from him. And they're talking about when he was driven mad and out there eating. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him um, uh, like with grass. Was it like dot? His body was wet the dew of heaven till he knew or acknowledged that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Is this a principle that's consistent across the board? Yeah, we're not talking about just Nebuchadnezzar. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Everything Daniel's told himself far is the same. Belshazzar already knew it. But he didn't humble himself. He didn't recognize it. And because he profaned the knowledge of God's, that God's the one who sets up and tears down kings and kingdoms, it says, you've lifted yourself, verse 23, you've lifted up yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, praised false gods. Um, so this message was sent to you, and the message is that, the balance, that you've been weighing the balances you've found wanting, and the kingdom is taken away from you. God has numbered you. God's measured you out. And... You're done. And in fact, what do we find out? That very night, he's gone. A dramatic way for God to show that I'm the one who's going to set up. And I'm going to set up Darius. You know, it's not just one guy. It's not just occasionally. I am the one who chooses kings. And this is a very fundamental principle for the nations. And it's one that our founding fathers didn't acknowledge. I have some quotes. This is dangerous when I start quoting founding fathers, huh? Because we have venerated them very highly. Um, this is from a very, very popular um, paper. Um, it's called, from Thomas Paine. What is it? Common Sense. I don't know how many Americans have ever read the document. He tries to use Scripture to defend what they were doing. And um, in the course of this, he makes this statement. Yet I should be glad to ask how they suppose kings came at first. He's really against monarchies. And here's the statement. The question, how did we get kings? The question admits, but of three answers, either by lot, by election, or by usurpation. In Thomas Paine's mind, kings became kings only by one of three ways, by lot, by election, or by usurpation. Which means that this guy is going to, in fact, he even quotes, um, where was it? Uh, I have a quote here. A French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. It certainly hath no divinity in it. What was Thomas Paine's claim? Why can we fight the king? Because there's no divinity in how he became king. What is he saying compared to the Bible. Didn't he just say that God did not mean for that man to become king? Our king. Isn't he, in this document that we revere in this nation, declaring this book to be error? These two papers are opposed to one another. Either God chooses who will be king and who will not be king, 
Or we agree with Thomas Paine that it is only by lot, election, or usurpation. Which document are you going to applaud? Our founding fathers rebelled against their king, the king that God had put over them, according to the Bible. They do not follow the format of Daniel, who served the kings, even serving Belshazzar. Daniel did not sneak the Persians in. <laughs> he didn't have to. The Persians were already outside the wall, had already figured out a way into the city by stealth. God sent a message. God had taken care of it. Daniel just called in to be the spokesman. Okay, you're in trouble. And this is the form you're going to see throughout Scripture even stretching in the New Testament, where you have John the Baptist fulfilling that role. What do we do? We look at them and say, God will judge you. That is the extent. We are the messengers of God, that if you don't humble yourself before God, God's going to shorten your days. God is going to shorten your reign. I'm not going to do it. And so here we have one of our founding fathers, and this was a document that was applauded, not just in its day, but even to this day. And yet, at its very core of its argument, is that kingliness is no form of government that has any divinity attached to it. In fact, i got to read this to you because it's just fun for me. It's not for you, but it's from me. In the early ages of the world, this is Thomas Paine. I'm quoting him directly. According to the scripture chronology, so he's basing his argument on the Bible, there were no kings, the consequences of which was there were no wars. You know your Bible. Did wars only start when there were kings? Hmm. Think about it. Um, it is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. And he gives an example. Holland is without a king and has enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark. For the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs hath a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Really? Does he not have the book of Judges in his Bible? Was there never any war? Was there never any disagreements? Was there never anything before royalty happened? Was our founding father right? That God did not establish King George? They are, Thomas Paine, in this document America venerates, makes a claim against what Daniel just says. God is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms. Well, then we get to the next king. After Belshazzar, Daniel has to deal with a guy named Darius, the Mede. And you all know about Daniel, the lion's den, right? Right? You know the story. Let's get into the conversation. What does Daniel say about his king that's getting ready to throw him into a lion's den? We know that Daniel openly and purposefully prayed and made supplication three times a day before the Lord, the open window. Um, he's caught. He expected to be caught. Um, the king, it says in verse 14 of chapter 6 in Daniel, the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. He was displeased with himself. That's a great thing. I love when kings are unhappy with themselves. And set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He did not want to kill this man. But he had no choice because of his own stupidity. So he had to give the command. They bring Daniel. They cast him in the lion's den. Um, but we skipped a verse. Verse 15. Here we go. I'm sorry, not verse 15. Verse 17. No, it's verse 16. So he gave a command. Father David cast him in the lion's den. But the king spoke, saying to them, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. A statement 
acknowledging the God of Daniel. Stone was brought, lay in the mouth, the king sealed his own signet, and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The king goes home, can't sleep, he's praying, he won't allow musicians come in, and he comes in and he asks this question, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, can you be able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel's response, verse 21, O king, live forever. It's a statement of submission. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I have done no wrong before you. The king was exceedingly glad. Commanded they should take Daniel out of the den. Daniel's taken out. No injury, whatever, on him because he believed in his God. And then, verse 24 and following, Darius writes a letter to everybody. First of all, he's going to have the entire families of the people who connived this thing thrown in and destroyed. And then Darius's letter, verse 25, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Wonderful testimony. No rebellion in this man. We are already introduced to this idea that there is a difference between uh, rebellion and disobedience. He disobeyed and he acknowledges that disobedience. Yeah, I did that. But I had to do that. And yeah, and so go ahead and throw me in the lion's den. You have to do that because that's the law, and I understand the law, and I broke the law, and so I'm willing to suffer the consequences of breaking that law. That is not rebellion. That is disobedience. And there's a big difference between Daniel and what we saw in our founding fathers. Theirs was rebellion against a king that whether Thomas Paine was to admit it or not, God put in place. You may not like the guy, you may not appreciate what he's doing, but what we're going to discover next week is that he was doing what he is allowed to do. God's given him the right to do that stuff. And we're going to revisit this document. I encourage you to get online and read the whole thing. It's a little lengthy. Um, don't read the addendum to the because I want to hold that off. Now you're all going to read it because I told you not to. Um, to the uh, Quakers. Uh, we're going to visit that idea as well. But we're going to address these concerns that our nation claims that we have more wisdom than God. This is the wisdom of our founding fathers encapsulated in a document that fundamentally challenges direct statements in God's word. Who chooses kings and sets them up and destroys them. Who does that? Well, according to my Bible, God does. And Daniel isn't the only one that's going to reference this, but we have it encapsulated here. And the reason I go to Daniel, like I said, is because he's dealing with the nations. He's not dealing with Israel. He's dealing with a foreign government. And he is submissive to that government. He operates within the structure of that government. He serves his king, even whether that king is Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I always ask the question, who held that kingdom together while Nebuchadnezzar was eating grass? Who do you think held that kingdom together for seven years? I think it was Daniel. He was the top man in the kingdom. He was over everybody else, pretty much. There wasn't anybody else. Someone preserved that for Nebuchadnezzar for all those years. This man served his foreign king. But he would never let that foreign king usurp worship. You can serve without worshiping. And we have godly examples throughout history of that distinguishment. 
that you serve but don't worship. We serve the authority. We worship God. And sometimes that requires us to have be disobedient to that authority, but never in a rebellious fashion. It's not I'm rebelling against the authority, because to do so is to rebel against God. But rather I'm disobedient to the authority, which means that I am ready and willing to receive the, the beating, the stripes, the imprisonment, the death sentence, if necessary, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw us in. We're not going to bow. We're not going to worship you. Worship is reserved for God. And we broke the law. Yeah, we agree. Do what you got to do. Throw us in. But let it be known. We're serving the one. That's disobedience. Disobedience is not rebellion. To rebel against the authorities is to rebel against God. And so when we get to First Samuel, you say, what does this have to do with First Samuel? It's going to have a lot to do with it, but I'm going to wait until next week to get to it. But a powerful declaration and example by Daniel for us to follow. Can we be disobedient and still be submissive? Yes. Serve whom God has put over us, recognize that he is still active, the active agent. But we have taken something away from that in our view of government today in this country and many others that we espouse, that we want to subvert God's work, not submit to God's work. And we're going to investigate that in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word and its truth. And Lord, these principles are clear. Um, But Lord, they're hard. (laughs) And our founding fathers struggle with them. Because they're inconvenient many times. Lord, help us to follow a testimony like Daniel. Um, That we might move in this world, in such a fashion that calls men to glorify your name. And it's in that name we pray, Jesus.